you have a copy of your own book of Demystifying Patanjali, <clears throat> we're on page 171. We said this is going to be our final class. <clears throat> and uh, this last part has been a little hard, uh, you know, especially I've, I've been a little baffled, and I admitted this in the last class. We were, you know, getting along somehow in the beginning. We were figuring out, making stuff up more easily. This is more or less <laughs> what we do on the spiritual path. You know, like, these guys, you know I, know, I don't know what they're saying here, but I think this is what they're saying. And we, we try our best from where we are to kind of, you know, arrive at some understanding. And so the first three padas were still, you know, Patanjali was... Kind of, you know, some of the concepts were more familiar and we could, but this final um, Pada of Kevalya Pad is, he's just, you know, he's, I think he's assumed that now that you've gotten this far, that means you've achieved, you've arrived at that absolute state. So now he's talking from, you know, a very, a stage from which how he sees the world from up top, how perhaps all these great masters see the world. And it's a little hard for us to fully tune into. I'm sure intellectually there are some concepts that we can grasp our minds around, but in general, this is definitely an aspiration that we're trying to kind of say, all right, if I can even just a little bit, wherever I am, even if I can get a little above where I am right now, I should have some sense of how the world ought to look like. And the last um, sutra that we left our uh, last class reading at was the 17th sutra, which was an object is known or unknown depending on the degree to which the mind accepts it. Now, the preceding sutras were talking about how reality is both objective and subjective, which means it's both uh, dependent on us as the person who's viewing it, but at the same time it's objective because even if I were to leave this world, this world continues without me because it's a, it's a united dream. It's in, in the sutra just above, he says, existence of anything, uh, nor does the existence of anything depend on the perception of a single mind. So he says, all of us are at it. And in some sutras back, he, he gave this baffling idea of time. He said, you know, time does exist past and present because even when you exit uh, in perfection, in moksha, in liberation, everything that you've put into motion thus far continues on living through everybody you've interacted with. So for them, time continues. And therefore, from that perspective, he said, past and future will forever continue in relativity, even when you exit this reality. And so, of course, he's talking about, you know, from a very, a state of like, what? <laughs> you know, how does this relate to me again? How is this going to help me tomorrow to, you know, be more cheerful at work? But apparently it does. And what's helpful for, for when we were looking at this 17th Sutra, I was talking about it in a very similar way. Oh, you know, when the mind accepts something, then we either understand it or we don't fully understand it. And how each of us see the world very differently, depending on what we're able to accept of this reality. But as I was reading it again today, I tuned it to this kind of a side note that if just reading it again, an object is known or unknown depending on the degree to which the mind accepts it. Now, we know this term acceptance, you know, we use it so often. Accept the situation as it is, accept people as they are, you know. And over here, 
it says if the mind's able to accept things, the object suddenly becomes known. So the difference between understanding something or not understanding is acceptance. And that's a hard thing, isn't it? We're constantly not accepting karma, not accepting people, <laughs> circumstances. We're not accepting ourselves. We have so many parts of ourselves that we want to reject, reject, we want to resist, we want to pretend doesn't exist. But what Patanjali is saying is if the mind is able to accept something, suddenly it becomes known. Means intuition is developed by acceptance. And I said, well, that's helpful, <laughs> you know, because before he's talking about this, oh, you know, single minds don't matter and we're like this unified experience of life and all our minds together are creating this objective and subjective reality. So it felt a little vast and it felt a little removed. But then looking at it again, just by itself, it's like, wow, yeah, if I can fully accept something, I will immediately know it. I will immediately intuitively able to perceive what's actually going on. And this is a wonderful way to look at acceptance because oftentimes acceptance is like this band-aid, you know what, just accept it. <laughs> it's more like, oh no. But here it is like, if you can accept it, you'll know it. And we're always trying to know stuff, aren't we? Like, <laughs> I'm trying to get to understand who this person is, but if I can accept them, I'll know them. I'll immediately understand who they are, why they're acting this way, what's going on, what's their karmic reality that has brought them to this moment. But this acceptance is not mental. It's not like, fine, which is how most of us tend to say, fine, I'll accept this also. <laughs> you know, This is embracing. The mind has to be willing to just completely accept, embrace and say, this is exactly what it needs to be. And when we can do that, suddenly the unknown becomes known. And I think this could be a wonderful, I don't know, I think of all the things that I'm going to read today, this might be the, this might be the most useful thing because everything else is just, just a little bit here. Then he goes on, because the Atman is unchangeable, the vrittis of chitta are always known to it. This is also a helpful thing. What does that mean? It means the Atman is always at all times aware of everything you're going to go through. It knows the vrittis, it's looking at it. Swami gives a very pretty, uh, you know, and a visual example of this here. He says, if you're standing on the river bank, then you can see all the whirlpools in the river. But when you're on the raft in the river and you're getting stuck in the whirlpool, then you only see the one that you're getting caught in and you can't really have context of the rest of the river. And this is what the Atman is. The Atman is just kind of standing in there and can see the entire trajectory. It sees all the pitfalls. It sees all the wonderful moments. It's seeing the karmic mm, patterns that already exist that we constantly find ourselves kind of drawn into. And because it can see all this, this is where we should be drawing our awareness from, isn't it? That's why we're meditating anyway. We're meditating you know, most people tune into meditation as a tool of, oh, you know, deeper relaxation. We're tuning into, oh, it's going to help me calm myself. It's going to help me overcome stress. But what we're really doing in meditation is we're getting out of the river and trying to sit on the riverbank. And we say, oh, there are those, there are those vrittis. And once we can do that, then suddenly all life 
begins to make sense to us, doesn't it? And then that's the acceptance that we're also tuning into. They exist. The Atman doesn't reject any aspect of its being. And when it accepts it all, when it's looking at it all, it knows it all. And this is, takes us to the next sutra and says, The mind is not self-luminous, for it is perceptible from without. What does this mean? <laughs> the mind is not able to perceive itself. This is the, you can say, dichotomy of the spiritual path, isn't it? We're approaching the spiritual path with the very same ego that we then hope to overcome. overcome. <laughs> it's just like, and you don't quite know what to do with it. You know? So how is the mind to know itself? So he says, the mind is not self-luminous, which means it does not have its own light. It depends on light from an external source. It is perceivable from without, means it requires to know the world, what does it require? It requires the senses. To know itself, it requires experiences. How do we know ourselves? We introspect. What is our introspection based on? What we've done in the world. Without having acted in the world, the mind is unable to know itself. It has no context, no reference point. It cannot create its own light. One of the very reasons for the guru on the spiritual path is because the mind cannot know itself. The very mind we're trying to understand is the very mind that cannot see itself. And so it requires the external world to be able to see itself. So it requires the world to understand itself, which is helpful for us. Oh, I reacted that way. Oh, I got upset here. Oh, look, I, I did really well here. So we, it helps to know itself by seeing, by being reflected in the world. But if it were to just know who am I, it cannot. It cannot create its own light. And so, here comes the role of the Guru. Or as Patanjali suggesting in the previous sutra, the role of the Atman. But since you and I, or at least let me say I, <laughs> I don't know about you, but since I don't know the Atman, <laughs> You know, and I can make up my own version of the Atman, like we like to. I think my Atman really wants me to make a lot of money today. <laughs> I think my Atman, Shiri, I think my Atman's all right with me getting upset today. Um, you know, so we just, we, we like to imagine our Atman is pretty much happy with all the desires and is happy with how we act, but that's not true. So the Guru is, you can say, the substitute Atman. Until you're close enough to know the Atman, let the luminosity, let light, come from somebody who has achieved that state. The individual mind cannot both perceive and be perceived simultaneously. It cannot both look at the world and simultaneously understand what, it cannot understand how mm, the soul gets to shine through it to relate to the world. It can either receive or it can perceive. And it's only a one-way street. There's a, in, in, in physics, there's a principle called the uncertainty principle uh, by a German physicist called Heisenberg. Um, so it's called Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty. And in that principle, it's about electrons. And I don't know if you know anything about electrons, but electrons are apparently constantly moving. 
They're always in motion. And Heisenberg figured out that you can either know where the electron is, or you can know where the electron's going, but you can't know both. So if you know where it is, by the time you've understood it's here, it's actually already moved because it's constantly in motion. You cannot know where it's going to be, or you'll, if you know where it's going to be, you don't know where it is right now. And essentially what he's saying is at the most fundamental level, everything in this world is uncertain because it is forever in motion. And that's true for us as well. You know, we, we're trying to understand ourselves. Swamiji often said that when somebody asked him, how do I know if I've made progress on the spiritual path? And he would say, don't focus on where, where you've, you've arrived, focus on where you're going and think about the direction. Because we're constantly in motion, because the mind is forever in motion, forever growing, because our consciousness is forever shifting, we cannot know both things. We cannot know where we are and where we are going. We cannot know the effect of the world on us and our effect on the world. We cannot both perceive and be perceived by the same tool here being the mind. And so that is the, we can, that's the limitation of using reason, using the intellect alone to arrive at any solution because it can only either know the fixity of it and it doesn't know where that energy is going or if it knows the energy, it does not know where that energy came from. And so we are forever in uncertainty. And so no matter how much somebody explains to us the spiritual path, we're still uncertain. That's why we are always asking questions. People are always asking questions. You remember in Patanjali what he said, the first sign of wisdom is when you feel that you don't need to know anything anymore. <laughs> and none of us have arrived there because we still keep feeling because the mind remains in uncertainty at all times. If the complete cognition, now these are the ones where it gets really, you know, this is where it screws with your mind. Patanjali is probably enjoying himself thoroughly. If the complete cognition of one mind by another were possible, one would have to postulate an infinite number of such cognizing minds resulting in a mixture of memories. <laughs> he's just, again, he's just like, Huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Patanjali, I appreciate that piece of information. I really do. But, you know, could you just come back to pranayama? Or, you know, how many even count breathing should I be doing a day? Um, what's he saying over here? He's talking about the individualization of spirit. Because in the next sutra, he talks about the consciousness of the self never changes. But when its reflection appears in the mind, the mind is illuminated with individual intelligence. This is where the ego becomes more solidified. Remember we talked from the very beginning, man, buddhi, ahankar, chitta. Man and buddhi are more universal realities, the mind and the intellect. It is when the ego comes in that it becomes individualized, which means it becomes referenced through us. But in the previous sentence, he's talking again about the state of the great masters. Because they're able to cognize every mind, all their memories are connected to everybody. You remember in the autobiography, Lahiri Mahashaya, suddenly in the middle of meditation says, I'm drowning in the bodies of these Japanese sailors, you know. And just like out of nowhere, because he's so united with absolutely everybody else's reality, 
that for him, there is no, re there's no individual memory that he's living. He's simultaneously living everybody else's life. Again, this is a state that's so beyond anything we can imagine. So, you know, Patanjali says, just for fun, let me throw that in there. <laughs> At least let me, let me let you guys know where you stand right now. You know, you're just so trapped in such a tiny... Imagine that these great masters are cognizing everybody's mind. I mean, I come back to this again and again. Master saying, I know every thought of every man, past, present, to come. It's just like, how's that even possible? <laughs> how can you know somebody's thought 16,000 years later? <laughs> what thought they're going to have? I mean, this is madness. But you see, because nothing existed for them. <laughs> They're just simultaneously already in that person's consciousness. So, there we are. Our memories are stuck with us is because our minds aren't able to expand to include everybody else. And imagine if we could, and this is where acceptance comes in, and this is a beautiful beginning for us. If we can accept, we then begin to know. And when we begin to know, we begin to actually unite, we begin to connect. And then we understand where everybody's coming from. We see the arc of their energy. We see the arc of their karma as well. And then we're no longer so confused because that uncertainty begins to leave us. So the consciousness of the self never changes, but when its reflection appears in the mind, the mind is illuminated with individual intelligence. And it's a nice word, reflection. And that's why in astrology, the sun represents the soul and the moon represents the mind. The moon has no light of its own and depends solely on the sun's light to be able to reflect it. And that's a helpful thing for us to tune into because it also means that even the mind, however chaotic, however restless, however crazy, however often negative it is, it's still receiving light from the soul. Its power is still coming from God even in all the ups and downs. And that's a beautiful thought for each of us. The moon, yes, it wanes and it grows. Some, when the full moon reflects more light and it does get dark too. But at the same time, whatever light it reflects, it's still coming from God. And that's a beautiful thought for us to know that this is not, we've not just created our own reality. We're still drawing from a very high source. Sometimes, however, as the moon wanes, there's a darkness as well. <laughs> there's always the possibility of light. The chitta understands everything according to how it is affected by its own nature and by what it sees. And this is, you know, again, we're coming back really to something we've talked about in the past month, buddhi ahankar chitta. You remember that uh, sequence, the mind cognizes, just receives information, the intellect processes information, the ego relates that back to itself. You remember the famous example, that is my horse. <laughs> and then, of course, the chitta decides how it's going to react based on the relationship to it. So, for example, say in an incarnation, you had a very bad relationship with your father. And so now the chitta has decided that this particular relationship is negative. Incarnations will continue where even when you have a wonderful father, you may not be able to connect with him anymore. You will carry the memory 
of that, the fact that you were once affected by something. And it's possible that incarnation after incarnation, no matter how many times the father changes, your chitta remembers and says, this guy is bad. And it continues to have a negative relationship because it decides how once it was affected. And once it has decided how it is affected, this is good, this is bad, this I like, this I don't like. And that's why, again, we live in such confusing moments. This person is perfectly fine, but I just can't get along with them. <laughs> you know, I mean, if I think about it, if my mind were to just rationale it out, they say, yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, they're always kind to me. They're sweet. They're helpful. They're... But I don't like them. <laughs> Why? Similarly, we have find ourselves in situations over and over again, and we're just confused. Why is this happening? It's because the chitta once decided that this is not good, or this is great, or whatever it decides. And so that's the problem with Mr. Chitta. But what Patanjali then goes on to say, desires and attachments exist for another, which is the ego, for they cannot act except in association with it. Desires and attachments. That's how the chitta eventually, you can say, expresses itself. You know, I, I like this and therefore the opposite will always be there. I don't like this. And then the attachment, I want to hold on to this. And in order to hold on to something, what does it require? Us to push away other things. And so there's always that tug of war, but it depends solely on the ego. And that's why the entire spiritual journey isn't so much about overcoming all our desires and overcoming all our attachments, although that plays a big role because it helps loosen our awareness of the, you know, our identification with the ego. But it's really about the ego. Because if you get man buddhi, and if we were to skip ahankar and go directly to chitta, there would be no identification to it. This is how the masters are living, you see. We know from the stories of our own guru, how sad he would be when somebody died. How happy he would be. So it's not like they're not expressing feeling. That's what chitta is. Chitta is feeling. Oh, I'm so happy this happened. Oh, I'm you know, unhappy that this happened. So we're seeing them experience and express emotions. From the outside, I'd say, you know, oh, he's the great master. He should just be really stoic and he should have, you know, he should have a poker face all the time. And he should exhibit absolutely no outward sense of the fact that he's enjoying or not enjoying this experience. Because that's how the mind says, oh, that's the yogi. The yogi is he who is even-minded, which is true. But at the same time, all great masters have exhibit, exhibited great amount of feeling. So the only thing that's missing in their experience is the ego. Man, buddhi, chitta. The only thing that they don't have is they're not relating it back to a single reference point. They're experiencing as the mind, they're cognizing, they're processing, and they're feeling. And there's no, at no point is that feeling sticking onto them. It washes through them. But they get to really experience it. And that's an important thing for us to realize because sometimes on the spiritual path, we think we need to become very like indifferent, very impersonal, which they have their place. 
but we don't know how to exhibit it because we're still egoically bound. We, we reject feeling or we don't want to show overtly. So, oh no, I can't get too friendly with people because, oh, I can't, you know, express myself fully because then I'm just... And to a certain degree, that's true because you, the, the more strongly we react because we're egoically bound, the more strongly that reaction is attached to us or identifies with itself. But at the same time, we have to realize that feeling chitta is in itself not wrong. It's only desire and attachment that bind it to the ego. For one who can distinguish between the mind and the self, thoughts in the mind cease completely. So when we're going into meditation, what's the biggest issue? Is restless mind. And even when we're in deep meditation, we're still restless. I mean, even my, mo my bestest meditation, I still have thought. Because I'm still only experiencing myself through the mind. I haven't fully detached. I don't understand. I haven't yet actually experienced the self. What's happening though, is remember the reflection. My mind has become a full moon, so I'm seeing a lot of light. But it's still being reflected. I'm not perceiving the source of the light yet. This is, again, we're talking about the difference between the great masters and us. Their feeling comes directly from the self, unfiltered. There is nothing to bind it to. Our feeling has to filter through the mind, our personality, through chitta that we've created over incarnations. And then finally, it expresses itself in highly uncertain terms. Very confused, even while it's expressing itself. I'm getting upset and I'm wondering, why am I getting upset? There's no reason for me to get upset, but here I am, I'm just getting upset. Because all I know is of the chitta of the past. When chitta, the primordial feeling, is drawn toward discrimination, it gravitates towards absoluteness. So Patanjali is saying chitta itself will take you if it understands discrimination, which means if it understands where is this feeling coming from, from the self or from the mind. In the Mahabharat, if you remember the story, um, you've got the Kauravas, you've got the Pandavas, the Kauravas are bad, <laughs> Pandavas are good. You know, we've talked about this in the Gita, the upward flow of current and the downward flow of current. But one fun thing about the Mahabharat, although perhaps not so fun for them, is that everybody dies in the end. Who doesn't die? Who remembers? Ashwatthama doesn't die. And what does Yogananda say? Ashwatthama represents, he represents attraction. And I've always found that very interesting. Ashwatthama, in fact, kills all the Pandavas. He burns their entire camp. And when Ashwatthama, who's the son of habit of Dronacharya, when Ashwatthama is a part of the Kauravas, were attracted to the world. You see, there's a you have to be drawn towards, we're drawn towards the world, no matter what we say about it, no matter how much we say, oh, it's Maya, but we love it. You know, We're absolutely enamored by the world. We're enamored by everything. We're not enamored enough by God. So Ashwatthama, when the Kauravas are killed, then the Pandavas are killed, 
and the Pandavas represent the upward flow of energy, but they're also born in captivity, so to speak. They're also uh, qualities of the world, not of the soul. Eventually, even the Pandavas die, leave their body before, you know, they uh, ascend to heaven. But that attraction, that's that primordial feeling, completely enamored with God. That never dies. See, that's why the masters come again and again and they're still enamored by God. They're one with Him and they're still enamored with Him. They're still in awe of Him. They're still amazed by Him. They're still attracted to Him. And it's always been very confusing. How can you be one with something and still be attracted to it? Because chitta at the end is what's drawing us to the absolute. That feeling is always going to remain. And isn't that beautiful? Because it's not a deadness. It's not, you know, in Buddhism, you've got this idea of nirvana. It's like there's nothing afterwards. <laughs> you know, you achieve the absolute and there's nothing. But it's not true. That attraction always remains. Always. The need to experience ever new joy, that draw towards it, always remains. As one is developing true perception, distracting thoughts may arise in the mind, owning to past impressions. So, of course, as we start to meditate and we get to a point, we, you know, the mind just keeps throwing stuff. I was recently doing a, um, a counseling with somebody and they were talking about just how I've just started meditating and all these fears are coming up. You know, it's just like, I thought meditation was supposed to help me overcome fears and now I'm getting even more fearful. I said, well, if they exist in us, eventually they all have to come up. And so the past starts to, you know, make itself known to us. Swami here says, that's why it's so important what we receive of the world. He says, having televisions on all the time, listening to music all the time. He says, those are the restless thoughts for incarnations, they will stay with you and they will keep coming forth deep in your meditation. And nowadays, of course, we've got the cell phone. Distractions can be removed as has been discussed before. So he's like, I'm not going to go into it. I've already talked about the fact that you can overcome distractions above all by meditation and resolving the mind back to its source, which is the object of meditation. The yogi who has no self-interest in personal attainment, who seeks God for no other reward than the simple gift of loving him, achieves perfect virtue. Now, this is another one of those really hard things for us to fully understand. I'm on the spiritual path because I want to be benefited by it. I have a very clear selfish goal. <laughs> I want God for myself. You know, I mean, of course, self-realization after all. The yogi who has no self-interest in personal attainment. Only he finds perfect virtue. <laughs> and that's a hard thing. But of course, we can't start there. We need something. We need something to attract us. You know, the world's been attracting us thus far. I want something better. I want to be attracted to something better because there's no other way I'm going to let go of this world. And so, of course, we start the journey with very much with selfish interest. It's a beautiful selfish interest. It's a very high selfish interest. It's the selfish interest that hopes 
to let go of all other selfish interests in the process. But it's still from the ego, you see. We still think that I get to achieve self-realization. I get to merge with God. And of course, at the end, as we get closer and closer, and so therefore we don't need to think about it so much right now, but it's something to keep in mind always. Only the yogi who has no self-interest in personal attainment achieves perfect virtue. And then he continues that by saying, in complete absence of self-interest, all afflictions and past karmas cease. So again, we'll come back to the same thing we've been talking about, the ego, that's I principle, that separateness that says, I need to achieve self-realization. I want God. I want to be liberated. Sooner or later, we have to work that process out as well. You remember the story of Chaitanya. We talked about his one disciple who, when he says he's going to, it's going to take him a million lifetimes to find God and everybody gets, oh, oh my goodness, he's the most advanced disciple. It's going to take him a million year lifetimes. And of course, later on, they see him dancing and he's so happy. And he says, oh, my brothers, did you hear the guru said, I will find God. And that's it. That's all that that disciple heard. He couldn't care less whether it's a million lifetimes, whether it's one lifetime, whether it's today, whether it's tomorrow. And of course, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu then comes and says, I only said this because I want you to see what the attitude of a true devotee is. And he kind of taps him there and there, and he achieves total liberation in that moment. And each of us are going to have our own time like that. But you see, we have to understand. Um, you remember we mentioned that something that Yoganandaji said, that in order to be free, you have to also help free six other souls. And that's a way for us to really tune into this idea of we can't be in it for purely self-interest. But then we have to look at it. Oh, I have to achieve, in order to fulfill my self-interest, I have to help others. But in the process, what happens really is I think those six people become you. And your own self expands to include those six. And then all six of us together, and then those six have to find their six and then the other have to find their six and so his freedom is dependent on the next six so if he can't find the next six you can't find free i mean it's isn't it just crazy you know how they talk about in the world i don't know if it's true but at some point they talked about everyone in this world is separated by six degrees of knowing so that means you know everybody in the world by with six, if you know six people, you'll essentially know everybody because they'll know six more people and those six people will know six more people and so on and so forth. And it's called six degrees of separation. You know, so you are only six people away from everybody in the world. And so I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's, what, that's why the master said we have to <laughs> free six more people. But you see the connection if I have to start thinking about it. Like, how do I achieve self-realization again? Because I'm stuck with six. Those people are stuck with their own six. So that's six by six, the 36. And then the other 36 people have their own six. I mean, it's madness. But that's what it means. It means that everybody's freedom is your freedom. And we have to get to that stage. And when we're there, then we're already everybody. <laughs> and then we're not so worried about freedom anymore. Then all the coverings of ignorance and impurities are removed entirely. In this state of omniscience, what remains unknown becomes insignificant and negligible. 
This is another very confusing statement for me. In this state of omniscience, the definition of omniscience is to know everything. <laughs> he says, in this state of omniscience, that which remains unknown <laughs> becomes insignificant and negligible. There's still going to be stuff unknown. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's like, is this all a scam? <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for omniscience and then you're telling me there's still going to be things unknown? And what does that even mean? But then you think of Christ and he says, that which my father knows, even I know not. Which is like, but you're one with him. And that's because, as Master said, when somebody asked him, when does this all end? And Master said, it only ends in endlessness. Which means there's always going to be new things for us to experience. There's always going to be an unknown. Because that's the very definition of infinity. There's no end. There will never be an end. So here we are, you know, trying to figure this ultimate self of our... But Patanjali says, yeah, even in omniscience, there, <laughs> stuff is going to be unknown. Because you're just going to keep expanding. Your consciousness is going to keep experiencing. Attraction will always remain. At this point, the gunas, finally the gunas, cease to serve their purpose as they have been transcended. The sequence of transformation ends, and with that ending, time itself ceases to exist. And the last sutra, thus one attains the supreme state of freedom when the gunas reabsorb themselves into prakriti, having no more purpose for serving the purusha. Or, to put it differently, the power of consciousness withdraws into its own nature. Thus far, the gunas have been <laughs> wreaking havoc with us and it's telling us everything is about the gunas and it's all about the gunas. And it's like, oh, finally, the, the gunas cease. No more gunas. We don't have to know sattvic, rajasic, tamasic anymore. Because, and that, what I like about it, it, it absorbs back itself into prakriti because it no longer serves the purusha. And who's the purusha? You. Once you attain that state, the gunas serve no purpose. What purpose was the guna serving up till now? It gave us a direction towards God. It's like it was the map. Here you are in Thomas, <laughs> here is Sattva, and this is how you're going to get there through Rajas. Well, once you've achieved, you've arrived at the destination, you can fold the map, put it in the drawer, <laughs> never have to look at it again. And that's uh, Patanjali's hope for each of us. You know, and of course, he's, he's not laid out an easy path, but he's left enough breadcrumbs that each of us, you know, both through our own intuition, through our own practices, through our own meditation, not through the mind, as he's repeatedly telling us, the mind's not going to be able to perceive this final stage. Only the soul, little by little, that light, we get closer and closer to the light. The moon starts moving closer to the sun, and eventually... The gravitational pull of the sun can absorb the moon entirely. So I hope that is true for each of us. And I hope more importantly, each of us never give up on that hope. Because that's the biggest problem, isn't it? We start realizing it's going to take a lot of work. <laughs> and that's when we let our energies drop. So make sure that never happens. I don't know about you, <laughs> but for me, this has been quite a ride. 
going through Patanjali because after finishing with the Bhagavad Gita, which was all about Bhakti and Krishna and Arjuna, you know, and Nishankarma, you know, just like it was like a nice, fresh breeze to the soul. But now we come to the study of yoga with Patanjali. You know, I really had to shift my consciousness and bring it from the bhakti that comes more naturally to me to the jnana yogi. I mean, we have gone through such complicated concepts that thank God that Yoganandaji was able to channel that wisdom and filter that wisdom and to translate for all of us to understand. And then later on, Swami Kriyananda, from that knowledge, put it into context for our daily lives and make of this something practical. So I'm, I'm ex we are extremely blessed that we were able, we are able to understand a little bit more but what, what I gained above all with this, you know, with Patanjali really is that there will always be room for perfection. It's not enough just to practice the techniques, to practice the yamas and the yamas, to practice asana, to practice concentration. We should aim daily for perfection. Perfection of your concentration, of your Hongso practice, perfection of your kindness, of your compassion, of your, you know, whatever that might be. Never become satisfied with the thought of, I already have my Kriya Yoga. I'm already living in a community. I already have been initiated in whatever. Let's not fool ourselves and be satisfied with just whatever little we have achieved. We need to strive for perfection. Just yesterday, after so many years on the path, I experienced chanting as never before. And I'm talking about after 15 years on the path, where I have chanted, and I have done kirtans, and I have been part of big celebrations, and, and I have tasted the power of chanting. But I didn't really tap into it as I did yesterday. And it made me realize that I'm not perfect and I'm not giving enough emphasis to perfect what my guru has already given me. And I always feel I need more in order to become better. And I'm setting aside those things that I have not perfected yet. So it's, it's very encouraging for me with Patanjali to realize that there is still so much work that I can accomplish and I can do, and in its perfection, I'm already achieving the goal. I'm already there. So I think this could be a very good thing for us to aim to perfect 
any aspect of the path on a daily basis. Tomorrow I'm going to practice truthfulness as never before. The day after I'm going to practice asana in my meditation. The following day, I mean, make the spiritual path so exciting that every day you know you can achieve something, you can perfect something and bring that into everything you do. I think that would be a very safe place to be on the path, knowing that you don't know enough. <laughs> and we can always do more of, of what we already have. And I, I feel very inspired from today onwards to start working with perfection of my consciousness through the path that I have chosen, through the teachings that my guru has given me, through the techniques that we have received. So introspect a little bit and see how you can make of your lifestyle a challenge to keep perfecting yourself, keep perfecting your relationships, and, and keep bringing the, the blessings of Patanjali, especially when you are working and striving towards perfection, because I think um, he can really add a lot of what he already achieved and speaks about. Um, I feel deeply grateful that even though there were many times I wasn't able to fully grasp intellectually what he was trying to convey, but but he has given me the hope that if I work towards perfection, I'm already you know, steadily um, going towards the goal. Lovely. Reminds me of the Sister Gyana Mata's mantra, more yeah, and more better. And better. Yeah, yeah, that's a good mantra to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Always we can do more and better. How do you want to end? Do a little meditation? Yes, let's or? just take a couple of moments to really integrate what we have received, what Patanjali now means for each one of us, and the relationship that we can keep deepening with his consciousness to our daily efforts. And if there is anything that was said today that really inspired you, just bring it to mind and ask the divine, your guru, those supporting you spiritually, to infuse you with a greater resolution to always do more, better, and more consciously.
ओम शांति 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 वेल थैंक यू एवरीबॉडी अनदर वंडरफुल जर्नी हैज कम टू एन एंड अ ब्यूटीफुल ब्यूटीफुल स्क्रिप्चर दैट वीव आई मीन वीव ऑल हर्ड अबाउट इट वी नो बिट्स इन पीसेस बट इट्स when you read it cover to cover you really <laughs> realize wow these people were amazing <laughs> you know what they've had to give us is just so overwhelming really and nice that we could take our time with it and go deep into each of it but of course there's still so many layers to tune into so read this book again and see if perhaps if deeper insights come to you now that we've gone through it just once and if they do come to you then please share them with us as well so we can plagiarize some of your work in our next sessions <laughs> in the meantime have a fabulous fabulous spiritual journey ahead jai guru jai guru